Great, thanks. Good to be with you again. It's been a couple years since I gave a Vocari lecture. And um, just to tell you where we're going to be going, I'm going to should talk for about 30 minutes, 35, and then we'll have time to chat. And I actually want input and thoughts and questions from you guys. I put some questions at the end. And just to forewarn, like last time I was here, I tried to think about a Sunday school lecture about you know journalism, the things I'm working on, and what's Christian about those. And we had a really great, I enjoyed the discussion then. And this one's going to be different because it's, um, this is essentially what I presented a week ago for my MBA thesis. I just finished that. Um, in Europe, in European MBAs, you typically have to write a thesis, unfortunately. <laughs> so um, I got it done. And I'm going to tell you the story as I go here of why I picked this topic. So this was the title of the thesis, Vetting the News, um, Solving Information Pollution in a Post-Truth World or in a Digital Era, I think was in the, the uh, title for this on the Vocari. But I, I want to just say two things real quick on the, on the wording of the title. Information pollution is my preferred term for the phenomena of fake news that's going around like crazy and was voted the most annoying word. Fake news was voted the most annoying phrase of, or term of last year. So I prefer this term, uh, information pollution. And also when I say post-truth, that's kind of not a joke, but uh, I believe in truth. So just starting out the gate. Post-truth, though, was also nominated by the Oxford Dictionary as the most, I think, the new word or uh, important word of 2016, I think. So that's where we get those terms. So um, I switched topics a couple times on my thesis in the last few years, and I, I launched into the research heavily last December, around this time last year, and I switched to the topic of information pollution partly because of this post I wrote on Forbes.com and what happened from it. So we, I think we can all admit 2016 was a really interesting election, let's say. Um, we've had a lot of interesting division, perhaps, from, from different parts of our society. Um, and I wrote this post because there was a lot of talk about alternative facts. And uh, the origin of this post on Forbes was that I got an email from one friend on the left who said, who was actually a former journalist, and said, I don't know what to read on the right. Um, Facebook seems to be serving up, and my network only seems to be serving up uh, you know, stuff that I like. And he said, I, I subscribe to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. I know the mainstream stuff to read, but if I want to really understand what's happening, which publications on the right do you recommend? And then I similarly got a, another email from a friend on the right who, said, who uh, was from Alabama and said, hey, I, I don't know what to read on the left that's legitimate anymore, and what, what would you recommend? So I was hearing these kinds of questions from people, and instead of writing them back individually, I put up a list of my top 10 outlets and why, and sort of from a journalism perspective, explain each of these outlets. And then I realized I should explain how one, so before you, I got to the top 10 list, I explained how you can some principles of maybe how you can determine what are good outlets versus some questionable ones. And I even wondered, should I even post this? Maybe it's too simple. Maybe everybody knows this. And I posted it, and you can see right here, you got, I got so far like almost 1.4 million views on this thing. And in that first week, it was, it zoomed past, you know, 100, 200,000. It was the most popular thing on Forbes during Super Bowl week. And then, um, yeah, I saw like, Editors from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal were tweeting it out and talking about it. And I started to hear then, once it published, I heard from citizens. Uh, citizens saying things like, well, some were debating 
the top 10 list and wondering why didn't you put this one in there or that one and why did someone you know had a good question why did you say where you find instead of where you can find facts rather than alternative facts you know there's people analyzing every aspect of this thing and but the but the thing I couldn't ignore was that many citizens were tweeting and writing and saying um, this was helpful just having a starting place to uh, to know where to go is really helpful. We are really confused these days as to what to read. And um, some teachers were saying, I'm using this in my class. And I started getting invited to forums like at a meeting of think tanks from all around the world that met at the Brookings Institute in Washington. And we were talking about, it was called the Alt Facts Forum. So I just started realizing there was a lot of interest and lift here. And that's a good sign, I think, in entrepreneurship um, of if you're seeing needs and seeing an audience wanting something, you should listen and go that direction. So, uh, so actually, I'll tell you. I'll, so now we'll we'll head into where I started to go. My question was, can we solve this problem of information pollution? And if so, how do we do it? You know, if this is, and can we do it from a with entrepreneurship? And so first, I needed to to understand. Uh, what was happening more. So I had to give a speech at Bethel University in Minnesota uh, I, a few months after I wrote that post on Forbes and I picked this topic basically and I remember this quote from Mark Twain early on it came to my mind as something maybe I'd want to use in this talk at Bethel. So it, you know in my mind it said a lie can travel around the world back again while the truth is still lacing up its boots. But I put Mark Twain question mark because I think I put it in my speech and I started trying to find the source of where he said it. And I started realizing, oh wait a second, it's also attributed to Ann Landers and Winston Churchill. Like, okay, well who said this first and did he really say it? And so I had to, just to use this quote, I had to start looking around and I found uh, this uh, guy named Gar Dr. Garson O'Toole who is a Yale PhD who has a site called quoteinvestigator.com. And he tracks down, there's actually quite a few quotes that we end up, we often hear people using in speeches and the person didn't actually say it. Um, recently, I, was, I wanted to use a quote by uh, uh, de Tocqueville and you know, America's great because she is good. That's another one that he didn't actually say in democracy, uh, his, his classic work on, on America. So this one, Dr. Garson O'Toole, I had to see, by the way, that's not his real name. So I, found, I had to find in the Yale Alumni Magazine, they had an article about him and what he was doing and said that's not his real name, but we verify he went to Yale, 1986, got his PhD here, so I had to vet the vetter. <laughs> and, uh, and so he basically, he tried to track down this quote. He looked at uh, Jonathan Swift expressed a similar idea in 1710, the writer Jonathan Swift, but O'Toole points to the Portland Gazette newspaper in September of 1820 uh, when it had this quote, for falsehood will fly from Maine to Georgia while truth is pulling her boots on. And that was what he verified as the earliest reference. And then perhaps Twain said it. Um, I don't know what speech he said it in. But this is the kind of, I think that we are dealing with a problem now that's been around for quite a while. And that quote illustrates it. We'll explain more on that. Um, I might also mention Jonathan Haidt at NYU. Perhaps some of you have read his book called The Righteous Mind. but he talks about how our brains and our psychology are hardwired to make moral judgments around politics and religion. And so these zones, as we know, uh, people prefer to hear opinions, sim we prefer to hear opinions similar to our own. So encountering ideas and opinions different from our own 
uh, fill us with superior order complexes that leads to civil disagreement. That's some of his observations from that book. And I think that plays into a little bit of what we're experiencing in our, our current scenario. So this is a cartoon I found online. And I think this is the kind of issue we're dealing with right now where I would hope most of us in the room believe there's a this possibility of objective truth, of finding evidence-based facts in both in our news content and in just in daily life. But there's a lot of other forces in society that are putting out information in different ways, right? And our, our news media ecology has changed with technology. So these things have existed, a lot of these things have existed for a while. The internet bloggers kind of knew. Um, but when media has changed, largely social media and the internet in the last 20, 30 years, it's really changed how we encounter information coming from these different parts of this, this onion, let's say. And as the, back to Jonathan Haidt, here's a cartoon kind of depicting what's uh, a dynamic, I think, in society right now, which is, you know, how do we know a news story is true if I agree with it, right? So, um, so I had to do a literature review first for the MBA thesis. And so uh, one thing I wanted to, to, to verify first was, is information pollution a problem? Or is it something that we've, that, you know, is it something that the left doesn't like the current president and just has made an issue? Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that it was indeed a problem. And so around the time I was getting really, really interested in this, uh, Facebook and Twitter executives had to testify before Congress. They've actually done that twice now. And they had to go to Parliament in the UK. And so in November of 2017, uh, we learned, okay, yes, we can verify that they told us that on those, on their platforms, Russian agents published 131,000 messages on Twitter, sent problematic Facebook posts that reached 126 million users, designed to inflame political and social dynamics in the US in that time frame. Uh, the, the EU Research Council uh, published some research by uh, a guy at Princeton in political science, Andrew Guess, who I think is doing some great research on this topic, and another guy from Dartmouth, and they found that one in four Americans in one, one month period during the election of 2016 uh, visited a fake news website, okay? That was from the EU Research Council. And then Pew Research has done a lot of good research on this topic as well. And they found that 64% of adults surveyed after the 2016 election believed that false stories are causing confusion. So we'll look in a little more depth here. Um, this is the Pew Research. You can just kind of visualize what we talked about. So 64% of Americans said it caused a great deal of confusion. And then another 24% said it caused some confusion, whereas 11%, only, you know, a very small minority thought it doesn't cause any confusion. So this is indicating to me this is indeed a problem. It's worth spending time on. Um, another from Pew Research, another piece of data here showed us that a third say they often see made up political news online. 51% say they see inaccurate news. Okay, so there's a very large percentage of our population believes this is a problem. And Pew Research is very reputable. So to me, again, that was a good sign to keep going. Uh, this was, Pew also did a piece of research similar to what Andrew Guest at Princeton did and, and verified that similar finding that one in four reported sharing fabricated news. I guess Guess's finding was that one in four read um, fabricated news 
and Pew found one in four shared fabricated news, again, during a, this was, they surveyed during a early December of 2016. Okay, so then I was reading a lot of thousands of pages worth of academic literature on the topic, ranging from library scientists to political scientists to computer scientists, trying to categorize, um, there's many, people try to categorize types of so-called fake news or information pollution in different ways. And I would like to see it in terms of three main buckets. One is hoax artists. Uh, so there's different types of hoax artists. It could be people who are incompetent in blogging or not, or fashion themselves as journalists but aren't living by any ethics and just purposefully putting out hoaxes. Um, it could be some of those are politically motivated hit jobs from the left or the right. Um, and there's also fake news purveyors like this guy pictured here. And these, they may be doing this for, to profit from clicks or other, other revenue mechanisms, or there could be government-sponsored disinformation campaigns like we've referenced before. So this guy, Jeff, uh, Justin Kohler, pictured here, he was on 60 Minutes and on NPR, and he opened a whole bunch of sites under his company called Disinfo Media. So that kind of tells you what his motivation is in terms of the title of the company. But he opened sites in California with names like nationalreport.net, usatoday.com.co, washingtonpost.com.co. So he's cl clearly trying to surf off the legitimate journalism brands and adding a little extension there, which is you know copyright infringement, one could say. Um, and then he's published myriad fake stories under headlines such as FBI agents suspected in Hillary email leaks, leaks found dead in apparent murder-suicide. Okay, so these are outright false, he was publishing outright false information on, on his platforms, but these, some of these posts, that particular post got 500,000 views, right? And so uh, he told 60, he told NPR, some of this has to fall on the readers themselves. Uh, the consumers of content have to be better at identifying this stuff. We have a whole nation of media illiterate people. So he basically says, He's just profiting on clicks on fools, right? And so to me, this is the most concerning and the thing we need to fix the most, this, this category, this bucket. Uh, the second category is, I think, simpler in a way. This is more just educating people of what is satire. Satire meaning things like The Onion, right? Here's a, uh, the Onion used to be a newspaper, but they published things online. The Babylon Bee is a fun satire, which is the Christian world kind of version of The Onion. Uh, the Daily Show taught generations of people to laugh at the news. It kind of makes fun of broadcast news, which it, you know, lots of good targets on broadcast news to make fun of. But I think it also created a skepticism among young people, especially in our country, about news. Um, and we have a lot of humor websites, social media satire accounts. And I think citizens, when we had a more binary, you know, a, a simpler time in the 80s or 90s, like when I was growing up, and learned what newspapers were and what television was. I think we had trained our society with some uh, media literacy categories. And then I think social media has been a blender and we have 140 characters for a tweet, right? And a label doesn't always fit in 140 characters as to this piece of, this is a story, a news story by the New York Times, or this is a piece of satire, this is a piece of you know, opinion, and citizens maybe not, don't understand these categories that they did if it was in a newspaper under certain sections of the paper. So I think this is one issue where we need more education, media literacy. Okay, yellow journalism is the third category. And this one's the most interesting because the, I think our current president has tried to 
the term, use the term fake news and turn it back on the media to weaponize it. And, and in my mind, that's fine, but it's also caused more blending and confusion to people. But I think basically we've always had, in our evolution of media, we've had elements of sensationalism. We've had, not in all media, but in some media. And there's been times in the evolution of newspapers and other media where some media don't correct their mistakes. Um, where you have biased ownership that emphasizes a certain agenda, where some media don't do a good job of explaining the difference between opinion and news, um, where some really bad outlets just fabricate news, right? The sign of a good outlet is if someone, we're all sinners, right? No journalists or outlets are perfect. Uh, but to me, one indicator, and I explained in that original Forbes post, is, is when the New York Times had a fabricator in its ranks, a young reporter who was making things up and getting away with it for a few months, when they caught him, when they found out he was doing that, Jason Blair in like the uh, early 2000s, they fired him very publicly, did an investigation, and explained that to their readers. So good news organizations, when they make mistakes, they own up to them and they, co they correct uh, systemically and or specific pieces of content. If they misspell your name, you can go to the New York Times and say, hey, you misspelled my name, and they'll run a correction or fix it on their site. And over time, we, you know, I read, for this thesis, I read some media histories by Mitch Stevens at NYU and um, Paul Starr at Princeton, The Creation of the Media. I recommend that book. I'll talk about that more in a second. And, you know, the takeaway is that it took, since Gutenberg's printing press, we had several hundred years of evolution in, our, in how we do journalism and how we do media. And there's always interplay with government regulation and, 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 and how media functions. But in general, we'd reached a point, I think in the last century, where standards and ethics became really important in our business. And now, they, it still is important in our business, but the understanding of the public about these standards and ethics, like I said, is blended and confused a bit. And so, I'll talk more about how I think we can fix that in just a moment. Um, just a case study here. So there's a guy named Alex Jones. He ran a site called Infowars. Maybe you saw it. He pretends to have kind of a news desk and spout his opinions about things, including things like he, he claimed that the 2012 shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School didn't happen, but it was staged. And that those are all actors, right? And so uh, and a lot of people tend to I believe this Alex Jones for saying that. Um, the, the parents of kids who were actually killed there say, no, that actually happened, and I'm going to sue you, Alex, for saying that, all right? If that was our kid, uh, I'd probably want to do more than sue the guy. So another thing he was spreading was Pizzagate. He spread a false notion that Hillary Clinton operated a child sex ring out of this pizza shop in D.C. called Comet Ping Pong. And a man actually showed up with an assault rifle and fired shots because he believed what, he believed that story. So. An interesting thing that has happened is uh, Alex Jones, a few months ago, was kicked off of Facebook and kicked off of Twitter and kicked off of YouTube, where he had where he developed lots of followers, and that raises new questions. We could come back to and chat uh, about whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but the social media platforms now, it's like when they started, we all opened an account on Facebook and we clicked terms and conditions. We didn't really read them. And we assume that this was me on Facebook is it's like me in Hyde Park Corner in London. And I can, I can say whatever I want to say. And 
this is a public place. And they perpetuated that idea uh, that this is a public place because the more millions, hundreds of millions or billions of us that join, they can monetize our data, our attention spans, our, our, us as an advertising market. And so now they've got a problem. They're getting hauled before Congress and Parliament, and they have a problem when they have actors like this spreading total false information. And they still haven't figured out what to do with that exactly. But where they're kind of at at the moment is, well, our terms and conditions say something about hate speech. So they kicked him off for violating their hate speech laws, uh, or their policies, I should say, not, um, rather than him spreading lies on there. And this was quite controversial if you're on Twitter the day they kicked him off, there's a lot of people arguing, now wait a second, doesn't the First Amendment apply And then uh, to Alex Jones on Facebook? And others are saying no, because uh, this is a private company, essentially. Being in Facebook is like being in this church. There's certain things if we said here that you know Jason could kick us out the door, uh, or if we're in a Starbucks, that's a private company. Or you know, anyway, so th this is, there's a lot of tension now in trying to figure out what, what is a social media platform. Is it a public space? Is this a utility, or is it a private company that can enforce its terms and its rules? And that's not easy. But I want to point to um, what does it mean if, if people are confused or if we're having these kinds of issues in our society with, with un news and information. Uh, I wanted to point to James Davison Hunter, who's spoken here a couple of times. I don't know if he talked about this when he was here recently, but I really appreciated his survey in 2016 around the election time, looking at the climate, not just polling people, but trying to get the climate of people's feelings about this country. And he found, and to just to summarize, he found that he surveyed 2,000 people, right? But he found that 81% of Americans say that America is exceptional, 93% describe themselves as patriotic. So there's a lot of faith in the country itself and sort of the history, but there's a lot of skepticism toward institutions, and that includes politicians, Wall Street, and big business. Uh, they think the American ec economic system's rigged in favor of the wealthiest. Skepticism toward like corporations, media, universities, tech firms, they think we all care little about the lives of most Americans. Um, most have little to no confidence that we're t the, uh, politicians are telling the truth to people. And then applied to media, there's 74% say you can't believe much of what you hear from the mainstream media. So if we live in a country where media is, was always established as a, tr like a, uh, a source of information, a common source of information for people uh, to report on government, school boards, crime, you know, elections, all kinds of important things in our world, it's, to me it's troubling if 74% have a general skepticism about what they read. Okay, so here's a couple of insights from the literature review that I did. Um, as I mentioned earlier, false information is a familiar foe, and it goes back to 1830s, the Great Moon Hoax. The New York Sun published a series of stories about discovery of life on the moon, which is clearly early for to that. <laughs> we still haven't found that. Um, and then, you know, the breadth of this, what we saw in 2016 is extending around the world, so the United Nations has verified that Facebook was used as a, as a, Muslim, a, a place where anti-Muslim hate speech happened, and false news in, in Burma, Myanmar, led to violence against the Rohingya Muslim minority there. And then we're seeing in Sri Lanka, Mexico, India, and other places, WhatsApp is being used as, as, as um, tools to spread false information that leads to, frankly, violence uh, on minorities and riots. 
religious violence too, by the way. Uh, so Paul Starr, who I mentioned earlier, one of my insights from reading his book on the creation of media was this, he, he pointed, he talked a lot in there about 1850, the United States education system had produced more literate people than, uh, than the European average and school enrollment rates were higher in America than most of Europe and newspaper subscription rates were the highest in the world in the late 1800s, 1850 to, late, uh, to, to uh, uh, onward there. And, and to the point where in New, in New York City we had, I think he said, 55 daily papers in, eight, in like the 1890s. And so it was just remarkable. And to me, what, that, what I was thinking about reading those kinds of stats was that did, uh, did the literacy and the education rates in this country lead to uh, prosperity to our industrial revolution? Did, how, how much did it help our industrial revolution and our progress as a country? And so then the, the follow-up question in my mind was if is media literacy and knowing how to understand news and information a new kind of literacy? Um, and if we don't, if our citizens are not savvy about news and information, what, you know, what impact does that have on economic progress and civic life? Civic life from James Davison Hunter and economic progress perhaps as, uh, as Paul Scar was talking about it. So another book I read was a, fr a Frenchman uh, Jacques Ellul, and he wrote a book called Propaganda that was kind of the classic work on propaganda, and it's a tightly written book with lots and lots of insights, and so one that I really liked was his notion that propaganda is an all or nothing game, that if you're gonna be a good propagandist, you gotta totally surround someone entirely and control their mindset. And um, he said, you know, he, he said China, Russia, and United States have always been really, you know, excellent superpower prop propagandists in some sense. Um, and this, he was writing, I think, in the 1960s. But this one gave, this quote actually gave me hope um, because I think in our current age, you know, technology brings a lot of really good things. And one of the things that uh, I, I was meeting yesterday here at a conference, and I, I saw an old friend from China uh, who has a journal in China. And, and I was asking him a little bit about this question. And I said, How do VPNs still, you know, can you still use VPNs in China? And he said, Oh, yeah. He says, you know, that's, it's, some are not as stable as others, but he mentioned one that he's using now that still allows him to use Google from China, right? So there's, it seems harder and harder to prevent leaks, you know, people from finding truth or information if they really want to in today's world. Um, I think in Cuba and Venezuela, I heard about there's networks of, you know, for a while there was networks where people would come into the country with CDs full of news and movies from the West or whatever, and, selling those on the street. You know, so it's really hard, I think, for propagandists to block people entirely. But we certainly see attempts at that still in some parts of the world we could talk about. Um, and so summing up a bunch of some of the insights from the literature reviews that misinformation propaganda have been around a long time, as we talked about. Uh, reporting accurate information is difficult and expensive. Um, journalists Journalistic processes and standards have progressed in the last four centuries. That's a good thing um, that we can build on. Misinformation's picked up in recent years, as we talked about with social media. Clearly, fake news artists and political actors preyed on audiences in, in, in the last election cycle, and they're going to do it again. Uh, one problem, one issue is that uh, the market idea is to get in front of that. Uh, it's a competition, and we have new technologies emerging that. Uh, if we figure out how to stop that Justin Kohler guy, we have to also think about the future of people using audio and video and taking everything you've said in a public forum where you have recorded audio 
and twisting it to make you make it sound like you said something you didn't say, right? Um, so the the, the future is, is going to be interesting with with these things. So uh, the fact checking movement has gotten a lot of ink in the recent years. One of my insights is fact checking is nice and good, but to me it's like plugging your fingers in the dike. As soon as you plug, as soon as you you find one piece of content, oh, it's got 500,000 views. So it's almost too late when you disprove like the reporting or the, the prove that it's false information. And as soon as you stop that one, there may be 10 more over in other places. So the solutions I was interested in looking at involve, can you use algorithms? The way algorithms are sometimes used to spread misinformation or target certain people, can we use algorithms to detect false information in the news? Can we use natural language processing to detect bias, to detect false information? Can we use tech as a tool to make us more savvy about media? Can we use filters based on reliability and trustworthiness? Can we continue fact-checking but improve how it's done so it's not too little too late? Can we use hybrid models of humans and artificial intelligence to help us solve this problem? And can we, uh, one positive trend we're already seeing is this growth in direct subscribers to quality news organizations. So, uh, you know, the New York Times, after the election, the, the big media, the top three newspapers, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times by circulation, experienced what we call a Trump bump. And the New York Times is up to, it went from one million subscribers to four million, getting, paying to get the newspaper or the digital site. Same with the New Yorker, the Atlantic. So I think what that's showing it to us is that the most intelligent and wealthy Americans, they've always been the ones reading newspapers in general, and increasingly they, and even younger generations, are realizing they need to pay for quality information. But it raises other questions, but what about those who can't pay? Are we see, gonna see information inequality, in a sense, and what are the impacts of that? So Pew did a study about uh, technology and surveyed a bunch of technologists and professors and asked them, is the glass half full or half empty? Can we solve this problem in the next 10 years? And so I viewed it, I viewed it as half full. And I liked uh, Laurel Felt's quote in that piece of research where she said, she predicts there's gonna be mechanisms for flagging suspicious content and providers and apps and plugins for people to see the trust rating for a piece of content or an IP address. So she thinks we'll have filters that you can install when doing searches and hits that show you when certain sites don't meet uh, or, or stories don't meet a threshold, right? And so I was glad to read it because I started working on a product like that. And Bart at uh, Clemson said something similar. People are envisioning algorithms and filters to help, help citizens become more savvy and determine what's a problem or what's not. So as the sort of original research part of my thesis, my colleagues and I, we built a database of 55,000 news organizations and it, they have to have a website. We weren't auditing broadcasts, we were auditing any news organization with a website, including newspapers, web-only publications, broadcasters with a website. And we, we looked at the top 50 traffic news organizations and evaluated them based on a methodology I used in that original Forbes post. Binary test, yes or no answers. Does the news org have a code of ethics and standards and does it make it visible to the public on its website, yes or no? Second, does the news org create its mis correct its mistakes and make the corrections policy visible to the public? A way that if they spell your name wrong, you can write to them quickly and they'll correct it, um, yes or no? And then third, does the news organization clearly s delineate news and opinion content and make that visible to the public? Um, 
both on the tags on the front of its site and on, we, would, we also audit to see, okay, we go to the opinion page and check, are they labeling each opinion piece with opinion or analysis or commentary to, to tell readers this isn't uh, news, and news, this is opinion. So the results of our audit, uh, we give, so if, you if a news org passes all three tests, they get a green light. If they pass two, they get a, a yellow. If they pass one or fewer, they get a red. So of the first 50 we looked at, 38% uh, got green, 50% got yellow, and 12% got red, uh, which is interesting and kind of surprising because, let's see here, you'll see, well, I'll go to the next slide. On the, it's a little bit small print here, but The Hill got a red. The Times of India, which is a pretty good newspaper, got a red. Yellow, The New Yorker got a red, uh, NPR, Yahoo News, ABC News, some, anyway, some good sites, Bloomberg News got a yellow. And so when I was auditing Bloomberg News, I have a lot of friends who work there, and so I'm not, you know, we, we did a very fair process and we take an independent approach. So I, I emailed Bloomberg News, uh, the spokeswoman, and I said, hey, I can't find your uh, corrections policy online. I also can't find uh, on your site, I cannot find a uh, uh, code of ethics. And I happen to know Michael Bloomberg wrote a book called The Bloomberg Way. And I thought that was their code of ethics. And I said, is that your code of ethics? Do you have a separate one? Is it on, on the site? And, they, and she wrote back and said, Augusta Mellon from Bloomberg uh, said, yeah, that's our code of ethics. You just have to go buy the book. And I said, okay, well, is it uh, on the site for the public? Well, it's on the site for people who have a terminal somewhere deep in the <laughs> reaches there. you know. And so this is the kind of thing we want with this audit, we think that our, this product and this, this research we've done helps show that citizens are super confused and some of it's the fault of these hoax artists and all, but I also think my brethren in the media can be more transparent and do a better job of helping citizens become more savvy. And so I think in the future, creative people, technologists, news industry professionals, we can help solve this stuff. And I also think the limitations are gonna be as we talk about mutations of the problem, this, how fast we can solve it, whether we can get cooperation between these, these kinds of people. And so uh, uh, we built a company while we were working on the research. So I incorporated a C Corp. Vet is a Swedish word that means savvy. And so the idea for the first product is savvy news. How can we make citizens more media savvy and news organizations more transparent? How can we function like a ratings agency that does that, that audits the producers of the content rather than chasing all the pieces of content coming out to, to, to audit those. We actually have a lot of domain names in different sectors. Of, um, to, is there a way we could make ethics more visible in other sectors like healthcare, banking, et cetera? But this is our first zone. We talked about the, pro the problem, so I'm, not, I'm gonna speed through these so we can have a little bit of time for questions. Um, this is a picture of the guy who was arrested for bringing an assault rifle to Comet Ping Pong. He was a, I think he was a Christian who thought he needed to bring his assault rifle to stop these Hillary and other people from molesting children at that ping pong keep comet place, all right? And this is embarrassing to me as a Christian. It's embarrassing to me as a citizen to see people so deceived that they, they go to that level. Um, I told you about our ratings. You know, these are sort of slides. We are applying to, uh, we're not raising, we're not turning money away, but we're not in a fundraising mode right now, we're building a product, which is a browser extension to make our rating system visible to the public. And we, um, we're also working on a Siri shortcut technology. And we have other ideas for other products. We're trying to finish our first two, and we have a uh, revenue plan and ideas, and we have 
I'm not going to walk you through all these. We also have competitors. That's exciting to us, actually, that other people are starting companies uh, to address this problem. Our two, the ones I'm watching most closely are FactMata in London, which is a more algorithm-based, less human-based solution, and NewsGuard here in New York, which is led by two other journalists, very seasoned entrepreneurs, and uh, doing something similar to us. They're watching us closely, actually. Um, here's where we think our competitive advantage is to our competitors. I'm not going to give you my pitch here, so I'm trying to get through these. But we have a team, uh, team of people working on our audit. Some of them are my former students at Columbia and at King's. Um, and they're in different parts of the world who operate in different languages. And one thing, and where I want to end, and I wish I had more time for questions, we should have a few minutes for questions, is this project, I thought both the research and the company we built, I thought we'd have, you know, the, the primary interest would be in this sort of news and information zone. And, um, and there is some interest there, but I've been, lately I've been, we've been demoing at uh, tech demos here at NYU and New School with NYC Media Lab. And then we met people there that are inviting us to go on TV and, you know, documentary films and to speak at, I spoke recently at this uh, summit on ethical tech sponsored by Pierre Omidyar Network, you know, he founded eBay. And so uh, I'm increasingly finding myself in conversation with this ethical tech community. And that's been surprising because I wasn't expecting that. And so some of the, I'm just gonna end in one minute, but I put together a bunch of questions that even this week have been coming up from fellow Christians, including yesterday here, we had Chris Long give a talk. And a talk about uh, are we as Christians media literate enough? Is, is being media literate a Christian endeavor? Is media literacy a marker of cultural elites and the wealthy? Or are we going to see information inequality? I think I touched on that. What happens to us and our children if we read only what algorithms serve up to us? Um, New York Times wrote about Silicon Valley execs who don't let their kids have any screens, um, who make their nannies sign forms saying, I will not use my phone when I'm babysitting your kids. Uh, and so what does that tell us? Uh, I'm wrestling with this with my own kids. Um, questions on media and technology, ecology. Think, I was this week talking to friends about Postman, McLuhan, C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis's quote from Abolition of Man, where he said this, there's something which unites magic and applied science. We could say that's technology, right? While separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. Is our technology helping us find the wisdom of earlier ages, or is it, is it separating us or our children from the wisdom of earlier ages. At some of the conferences that I was at, uh, I remember someone talked about the Hippocratic Oath, right, that applies to above all do no harm, and that some industries like drugs, pharmaceuticals, food, there's heavy rigor around the potential harm. What are the unintended consequences if we create Prozac, right, and tons and tons of testing? But with Silicon Valley, we don't seem to have that philosophy. It's really move fast and break things, right? Well, we've broken some things. Um, and so what, both as humans and as Christians, what should we be thinking? Is that the right approach? What, how do we do something that's better? Literally on the train today, I found, you know, Postman's five things we need to know about tech change. I'll probably be using this in the future. Um, where are we headed? Whoops, that was the last slide, which I'll just up here. Where are we headed if the tech industry doesn't act with an ethical framework? Um, 
the few computer science programs have, there's a movement to teach ethics in computer science because they've largely, it's largely been a class that hasn't been offered in computer science. So the OMAGR network, again, they're lefties. Um, they have a contest for best ideas to teach ethics in computer science. I think that's great, but I also think it concerns me when I'm going to these panels and I'm hearing, uh, let's just say, more left-leaning and anti-religious or anti-ideas or people from those vantage points trying to come up with solutions, and I'm not seeing others in the room. I'm, I'm a little worried that maybe we're, we're just kind of agnostic. We Christians, are we agnostic about these issues? Um, so I think I'll just leave it there and see if we, I think we're almost at closing time, but uh, so it could be we leave you with food for thought, but I'd love to chat more. I wish we had more time for questions.